0: Welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academic minds into conversation with each other. But welcome also to Comics 101, since today's show is all about the comics canon. Highly esteemed works of comics art that have been entrenched in Western society's study of graphic narrative. Works that are read, taught, and cited to such a degree that they take on a certain invulnerability. Like Hamlet or the Canterbury Tales to the broader study of literature, the study of comics literature accepts the comics canon as beyond reproach. That's where we'll start today, with a look at Chris Ware's 2000 graphic novel Jimmy Corgan: The Smartest Kid on Earth, which, according to data from the Open Syllabus Project, appears on over 200 university course syllabi. And we'll also be reading Art Spiegelman's Mouse, Volume 1, which became the first graphic novel to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1992, and which is featured on over 2,000 university course syllabi. For our academic review, we will tackle the most sacred academic publication in comics history, Scott MacLeod's 1993 comic about comics, titled Understanding Comics, The Invisible Art, which is itself featured on 1,733 university course syllabi. The hope here is that a fresh pair, or three, of eyes on some foundational texts might hold the potential to yield new insights about how well these texts hold up, insights that might speak beyond the texts themselves, however, and offer up some perspective on the field of comics literary studies as a whole. If nothing else, it should be a fun conversation. So I am Dr. J. Andrew DeMann from St. Jerome's University, and I am joined
1: today by Michael Hancock, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Waterloo, and
2: I am Dr. Anna Papard. I am a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University.
0: Uh, So these texts have been discussed and described in lots of different ways by lots of different people. That's sort of the overarching theme of today's podcast episode. Um, But let's hear our introductions from our panelists to get their take on these respective texts. Uh, And let's maybe start
1: with Michael introducing us to Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth. Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth is a baffling book to describe after a first reading. Uh, it begins rotated 90 degrees, forcing you to literally change how you're reading when it switches to a more typical left to right. There's confusion as to whether the title refers to the mild mannered present day Jimmy Corrigan, a 36 year old meeting his father after a long estrangement, or whether it's referring to his grandfather, who has the same name as an eight year old child with an abusive father in 1893. You're the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition. And either way, both of them are drawn as middle-aged balding men. Uh, Jimmy, either Jimmy, can also slip in and out of fantasy and dream at any moment, drawing into question what, if anything, in the comic is real. Thank goodness that about 100 pages in, it switches to being a dictionary for a while, and provides the definition of a summary to tell us what we've read thus far. Okay, I'm being a little glib there, so let me go back. Uh, Jimmy Corgan, the smartest kid on Earth, was released in 2000, collecting the series after its original serialization in the Chicago newspaper News City and Ware's academic novelty library. Ware himself is a cartoonist who first reached a wider audience when he was invited by Art Spiegelman, hey, that's, that's a familiar name, to contribute to his anthology magazine Raw. From there, Ware started his fantastographic series, Acme Novelty Library, which has become known for pushing the boundaries of comic book publishing conventions. He has been very well lauded for his creative talents, receiving 22 Eisner awards, ranging from best ongoing series to best comic related product, and 29 Harvey Awards, including Best Cartoonist, Best Letterer, Best Colorist, Best Cover Artist, Best New Series, Best Continuing Series, Best Single Story, Best Album of Previously Published Work, Best Anthology, and Special Award for Excellence in Presentation. Where, to put it briefly, has chops. In terms of design, Jimmy Corrigan shows these chops well. It honestly seems at times that no two pages in the entire book has the same panel layout but the sizes and flows of the panel almost always feel appropriate to the action at hand, whether it's the monotonous existence of the adult Jimmy or the world Fair in 1893. Though, as a negative, its font is often very, very tiny. Uh, Likewise, I think Ware does well with the larger themes of the book, the confusion and alienation both Jimmys feel in relation to their families, particularly their fathers, and the contrast between the grandeur of nature and the fair with the mundane day-to-day life the characters lead. The characters themselves are a little harder to swallow. Jimmy Corrigan, the book, not the people, is very bleak in many ways, which is mostly expressed in Jimmy Corrigan, the people, not the book. Both characters are extremely withdrawn and passive, desperate for any human affection while also shoving it away. This is somewhat understandable for Jimmy the child, as he's an eight-year-old boy with an abusive father, but a little harder to take in a 36-year-old version. In both cases, their escape from bleakness is a retreat into fantasy, which again speaks to the contrast of mundanity and wonder. The result makes for a story that's excellently told, but often not very pleasant to read. Uh, And Anna, can you walk us through your take on Art Spiegelman's iconic
2: mouse? I certainly can. So I sort of doubt there's anyone out there that would be listening to this particular podcast that hasn't heard of mouse in some capacity, but I'll run through the usual details just in case. So, Mouse is a graphic novel by American cartoonist Art Spiegelman. It was serialized from 1980 to 1991 in the avant-garde comics and graphics magazine Raw and collected in two volumes, Mouse 1 and Mouse 2, during that span. In 1992, it became the first comic book to win a Pulitzer Prize. This recognition, along with a flurry of glowing reviews from virtually every literary outlet in existence, helped make Mouse one of the first comic books to be widely studied and taught within the world of academia, and slowly but surely began to shift the American public's conception of comic books, from disposable kids' fare to something capable of having legitimate cultural value and discussing serious adult topics. As most of you probably already know, Maus focuses on Spiegelman interviewing his father, Vladek about his experiences during the rise of the Nazi regime and after he and his entire family, including his wife and Spiegelman's mother, Anna, were taken to concentration camps, including the infamous Auschwitz, where the majority of volume two takes place. To tell Vladek's story, which is also, of course, his own story, Spiegelman uses an artistic conceit wherein he depicts human beings as different kinds of animals, depending on ethnicity and nationality. Poles are pigs, Americans are dogs, the French are frogs, Germans are cats, and Jews are mice. This conceit risks being reductive, but to my mind, it isn't. Spiegelman uses this conceit to reflect and critique the cruelty and insanity of a world that would reduce human beings not only to animals, but to vermin, fit only to be captured, caged, and exterminated. There are plenty of canonized works whose venerated status deserves to be questioned, but I don't have that much doubt that mouse's canonization is earned. I opened it the first time on a whim. I was a teenager, and it was summer, and I was taking a break from my rigorous schedule of basketball shooting drills to grab a bite to eat and cool off in the dimly lit living room, where all the curtains were drawn against the sun. I plucked it from one of my parents' many overstuffed bookcases because it looked like a comic, and we didn't usually have comics around. I meant to just glance at the pictures while I was eating, but an hour later, I was still reading. Some hours after that, I was finishing volume two, with tears streaming down my face. I've cried many times since rereading this novel which i've done often as i've taught it many times at the university level and every time i do there's a handful of students who approach me with that same story who've opened a book expecting to maintain a board distance only to be swept up in one of the greatest saddest mo- most beautiful comics ever made i look forward to discussing some of these experiences and techniques with you guys today <laughs>
0: Uh, So I think maybe the most natural place to start, uh, we've got a gap of history here to deal with. I think we're at an era in comic scholarship where we are starting to see earlier directions of comic scholarship come under question, uh, and that includes the the text that sort of defined certain eras, uh, maybe even the movement in general. Terry Eagleton says that without proper tools for literary analysis, it only boils down to why is this good, uh, as if that's a failure on the part of a scholar asking that question, um, but I would like to fail forward with that question and just ask you guys, in the case of each of these texts, why is it good?
2: Well, I guess I gave that passionate intro to Mouse, so I guess I'll I'll try to attempt to summarize my feelings about it. To me, and it's not like I'm the first person to say this. Anytime I talk about Mouse, I feel like a broken record since it's been so infinitely talked about already. But to me, it's doing the things that comic is capable of doing about as well as comics can do them. I mean, to tell a horrific story in a way that's accessible to people of basically all ages, Mm -hmm. but also uses that concept of amplification through simplification to such stirring effect in terms of simplifying this reality through the use of these highly identifiable uh, mouse characters in particular, um, who are... He manages kind of the cuteness and the horror of it so effectively and to choose that particular figure, the figure of the mouse, who we associate so strongly with comics and cartoons through Mm -hmm. obviously the character of Mickey Mouse in particular, but also the long tradition of funny animal comics, which is one of the most denigrated genres in comics, despite being one of the most Mm -hmm. popular genres of comics for most of its history, to turn that on its head and tell this particular story with those particular characters and some of the ways that he subverts that as well by drawing attention to problematics of representation through that conceit of representation. I don't know, I could go on and on about any of those things, but to me it's sort of it's the accessibility of it. It's the way it's able to solicit identification. It's the way it specifically does those things through the comics forum that I find it to be such a celebration of what comics are able to do. It's taking the lowness of the medium and elevating it. It's making use of that those, those kind of things that are so often criticized about comics that they're simplistic. Again, as I said, I find it to continue to be moving every time I read it.
0: Yeah, I think you're picking up on kind of these, um, these two widespread contradictory um, opinions of mouse. One, that it's the most sophisticated use of the comics form in some people's eyes. Uh, and two, that it's universally accessible.
2: Yeah. And in
0: a lot of ways, as I said, that that's kind of contradictory because we often think about like sophistication and technique as tools that aren't accessible by everyone. Um, how, how do you think mouse is able to do both simultaneously?
2: When you use comics in this way, you know, through that concept of amplification, through simplification, I mean, and it also uses closure in, in in interesting ways, too. And even, you know, just drawing the text in this comic, which is so effective for telling a personal story. I mean, it's it's so different than something printed in a novel, right? There's so many elements of this that we can discuss. But, you know, I think because it's taking up those kind of, like, as I said before, kind of like those elements of comics that have been denigrated as, as being markers of low culture, right. Mm-hmm. That accessibility, but using that as a commentary on the reductionism, you know, of the Holocaust of racism. Mm-hmm. Right. And it is that turning it is on its head thing. Right. The duality of the mouse metaphor that works so effectively, right. That it like resonates with the Nazi regime, reducing people to vermin. And yet mice can also be this highly identifiable character, which is present in the history of cartooning, right? And the delicacy with which he designs the mouse characters to be both cute and yet having just enough human features to make the scenes of horror appropriately horrifying, I don't know, it's just so effective. It's, like, marvelously effective. Like, mm-hmm. it's simplicity with so much thought behind it that I think that's how it draws that balance.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been so much work done in comics in terms of biography and autobiography and the way that he manages to combine both forms here in mm-hmm. without seeming like it's i mean autobiography can is a genre that can feel both like very performed and very spontaneous that we are taught you're just going through your memories as they unfold but also you you are ordering your life into a set of pieces and it captures that sense we get both the father's story as rambling at times mm-hmm. but also like the he, he literally shows us how he's ordering it, too, and but without seeming overwhelming.
2: Well, yeah, and I mean, the style and that central conceit of of sort of the animal metaphor and some of the overt gestures that, that Spiegelman does within the comic in terms of addressing that conceit are really good for embracing the inadequacy of autobiography as a truth text, mm-hmm. and particularly as a way of accounting for historical events that are always going to be experienced subjectively right Mm -hmm. you can't be objective about your experience of surviving the holocaust i mean that's ridiculous Mm -hmm. so it's so effective in terms of capturing the subjectiveness and the subjectivity of that i think i could say either word there and you know some of those gestures that he does to comment on it right you know sort of debating the animal metaphor um, with his wife in that one scene Mm -hmm. um things like one of the characters appearing as um a different character to people because they've been categorized a certain way right he's very aware of the reductiveness of it and right. the dangers of that and i think effectively kind of addresses it but obviously some cartoonists notably harvey picar have lodged objections to the productionism reductionism of the comic he's one of the few people who who actually has had some success in making mm. those criticisms mm-hmm. um, um known in public because For the most part, this is such a praised text that criticisms Mm -hmm. of it are kind of hard to find.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a text that um, benefited from sort of what was happening in academia at the time it came out as well. Yeah. Uh, Just because it it really intersected with a lot of important discussions on life writing and the sort of rise of that field of study. Uh, And as you said, with um, the basic framing mechanism of mouse, you 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 can deal with those. On the other side of things, looking at Jimmy Corrigan.
1: From the start, I would not define Jimmy Corrigan as accessible. Mm -hmm. i would agree uh i think like panel by panel yes but i think it asks a lot i mean it asks a lot for the reader with these time jumps with characters that we drift in and out of with fading into these dream sequences it asks you to do a lot in terms of making the connection between panels that because it's doing unusual panel layout sometimes you have to work a little harder to find how it's flowing Mm -hmm. um and and it's it goes even further into being deliberately obtuse at times, like the yeah. the way the the book ends with his afterword that is like just so jammed in there together. Mm. Or the way the text gets so small, I feel like I should have brought a magnifying glass.
0: Yeah, you've done a lot of work with transmedia and gamification. Uh, how do you think those elements mm. are, are contributing <laughs> to the text?
1: There's a part where, like, here, cut this out and build yeah. something with it. But it's done so if you do that i mean no one's going to do that anyway but if you do that it's double sided there's part of the con- there are different constructions of both sides so you're making this choice whether you want to deliberately destroy yeah. one part or the other and like even that is alienating
2: well i just <sighs> Jimmy Corrigan is not a text that I particularly personally like that much. I've always struggled to teach it. I have taught it before. It's impossible to teach. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and it often gets put at the end of the term of a mm. comic survey yep, course, which is like, yeah, I put Mouse at the beginning, which mm. they love, and then they get to Jimmy Corrigan. They're like, oh, oh. <laughs> we have our essay due this week. We don't I, have time for this. I, I think
1: if you put Corrigan at the beginning of a course, well, you can weed out some students very quickly. Yeah, that's well, true. I have
0: actually taught... Um, I, I taught a, a comics art course uh, at the University of Toronto and I told my students, because Jimmy Corgan was the last book mm-hmm. on the text, that a lot of this course is mm-hmm. training you to read Jimmy Corgan. Yeah, because... I know. <laughs> See,
2: that's the idea, right? But then placing it there, it's like they've got too many other things <laughs> on their mind and they don't want to like deal with it. Well, okay, so one of my critiques of it, which I don't know whether it's a critique, because again, you can just argue that that is the artistic purpose of the text. But I mean, we talk about something like the diagrams that you can't put together, I mean, what is that doing? Right. It's taking something that was this wonderful accessibility of comics and like, I don't know, twisting it into such a such a negative alienating thing that I, I just don't even know how I feel. Well, about I'm going to make
1: a comparison here um, to give people kind of a peek behind what we're doing. I, I was recently, uh, Anna, very generously asked if i would give a you presentation very generously on squirrel. gave a guest lecture on squirrel girl yeah, in my course yes. one of the things that happens in squirrel girl beats up the marvel universe is that it has uh two activity pages that ask readers to do some dot to dot some word searches and so forth and that is also asking them to do things with the page that they probably aren't going to do and if they're if they've got a digital copy literally can't do but that didn't feel alienating it felt like you were being let's make let's bring in something that is familiar to you almost Mm -hmm. whereas this is not let's go to child to our childhoods and our joy in building things it's something else
2: well it's subverting the accessibility of comics in a way right I mean calling attention to the material. Yeah. yeah, for sure, right? But I mean the thing I honestly can't answer for myself and I will be interested to talk to you guys about it is just that we talk again and again and again about comics being this participatory medium, right? Going back to that concept of closure. There's space between the panels. We have to make up what happens between there and depending on how you view comics reading, like fill that in or 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 do whatever, um some form of closure, right? So Jimmy Corrigan is in theory a highly participatory text, and yet Mm -hmm. it's a text that, you know, has these gaps that are almost impossible to fill in unless you go Mm -hmm. to such lengths. And then even if you do, the timeline of the comic probably doesn't make sense. And I just feel very undecided about what the point of that is in some sense. You know, what commentary is that making on comics readership or the comic book form because i find it very frustrating
0: i don't know that jimmy Corgan is interested in commenting on the comic book form so much as employing it like i don't think yeah, it, yeah. It, it often gets to metatextual mm. levels the same way that spiegelman does my interpretation of it is um maybe a good comparison from a contemporary perspective would be um the fx show legion Mm-hmm. Uh, which is all about essentially using cameras and actors to create different effects, surreal yeah. effects, yeah. Uh, to bypass the sort of like rational interpretation mechanism. So I think when Jimmy Corgan does stuff like here's a diorama out of nowhere... I think it's meant to reflect the mental state of the character. The idea being this character suffers a lot emotionally, Mm. intensely from an interior perspective. Yeah. Uh, And then this is an escape for them. It's a nice distraction. So when the text invites you to construct a diorama, it's basically saying, hey, buddy, do you need a timeout? Yeah. Uh, And that's kind of putting you in Jimmy Corrigan's
1: shoes a little bit. I, I don't know what to make out of the fact that there's less of it as the book goes on. Yeah, that's true.
2: Well, it just, I don't know. I feel like it gets me back to that. Central problem that I have with it, though, because if one of the things I like so much about comics is its participatoriness, Mm. and this is exploiting that in an alienating way to Mm. reflect his very alienated mental state, it's like anti-what I like about comics. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We could argue that it's
0: avant-garde, right? That he's cultivating techniques that other comics artists have since employed in a more accessible way. Mm
2: -hmm. Um. Well, I mean, we... See, one of the things I sometimes come back to about something like Jimmy Corrigan is, is it even comics or is it <laughs> illustration? Oh, wow. I kind of feel like individual pages are, should be studied as forms of illustration. And is it actually telling a sequential narrative? I mean, or is it mm. instances of illustration that are collected into a volume, incidentally? Wow. That I have elements of sequence, but I mean, you know, illustration can have sequence as well.
0: Right. I mean, he he's doing things that clearly do depend on sequence in some instances, and in other instances, I, I would agree it is kind of illustration.
2: Because if it wasn't being sold to me as comics, if it was being sold to me as an art book, mm-hmm. I would actually have less of an issue with it. So, to be clear, so that there's kind of a there's all these different you know terms that we apply to comics, right? You know the the complication of what is a comic, and what is a graphic novel being the most obvious one, right? But there's also the, the, the distinction between what is an art book and what is a comic, right? To my mind, a comic has to be, it, it has to have that degree of accessibility, right? It has to be a story,
1: mm-hmm. right,
2: that unfolds through sequential narration. And although Jimmy Corrigan has that, it's almost like a rock opera, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, Tommy makes sense, but doesn't.
0: It's just setting up the next musical number.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's sort of like loosely strung together things like around a central idea. Yeah, there's
1: a bunch of events that are strung together, but...
2: And they're thematically linked. And we do certainly have a story here. We have, you know, all these interconnected people, like going back to the original story of abandonment of the Chicago World's Fair. So it is a story in that Well, most basic sense. I mean, sense. is and a yet... collection of
1: Garfield strips a comic? Well, is it a comic book? Oh, God. <laughs> 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 because that's almost... That's, yeah. This is almost closer to that in some ways...
2: I feel like for me it actually suffers by trying to be a more traditional text than maybe it should be. And maybe if it just kinda of leaned into being an art book rather than a comic, I would actually be like, Okay, well that's the that's the way I'm supposed to interpret it. And I, I won't try so hard to make it comics.
0: Right. And that exists, right? Because the Acme novelty library stories where this came from. Yeah. They're not exactly the same. Yeah. There's been a lot of
2: modifications in mm-hmm. order to make it's this been an error. Comicified. Yeah. But to its benefit or detriment,
0: I like it as again kind of um, a depiction of interiority. Yeah, just the yeah. idea of um, the emotional turmoil and mm-hmm. chaos that Jimmy is going through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it kind of reflects his his psyche mm-hmm. in some interesting ways. But I mean, that's a that's a really easy argument yeah. to make.
1: Yeah, I did not like the present day story, but I was I, I liked the childhood story a lot.
2: I liked that a lot too. I mean. His skill at drawing buildings is obvious, right? Yeah. And I mean, you know, kind of, I felt that, well, in our previous episode, we were talking about um, the Mike Carey graphic novel, Highest House, and I was complaining that I didn't think kind of the building metaphors were used effectively there. In the Chicago World's Fair uh, sequence from Jimmy Corrigan, I really liked mm-hmm. the stuff with buildings. I mean, he he's using... Cities and comic books work together so well. I mean, superheroes are located in the city for a reason, right? Cities are composed of grids. Comics are composed of grids, depicting cities within comics. It works with the modernity of comics as a form too it being sort of a form that it that emerges you know partly and in response to the development of the printing press and the newspaper at least within its american context right so it has that it it has that urban context kind of built into both its history and and, and its form mm-hmm. and a lot of early comic strips are sort of about surviving or enduring sort of the shocks of the modern city right yeah and that yeah. particular
1: moment That's in true. american hi- yes. history of yeah. the chicago fair is Very much like what does the world look like after this
2: Mm -hmm. and yeah one of the in uh scott bukeman's um essay about superheroes in the city which is Mm -hmm. still one of my one of my favorites about superheroes um he talks about superman existing within the grid and transcending the grid and the Mm -hmm. comics form using that uh, again and again sort of as a motif so I really liked and we can break it down a little bit more specifically, which is again always such a challenge within a podcast when you guys don't maybe have the images in front mm-hmm. of you, but I did like the ways that he used like building as metaphor in that sequence mm-hmm. and liked it sort of a little bit better than sort of the metaphor of him just being closed in by, you know, the mundanity of reality and some of the well, the majority of the rest of it, because that went on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And well yeah.
1: I I will say I couldn't tell you where Uh, adult Jeremy goes i do like the way that small town is kind of set up that the space is really gives you a sense of the area
2: yeah yeah i think there's
0: also some connective tissue to be found in um, the symbology like there are a lot Mm -hmm. of strong recurring symbols um, that, that sort of yep. help create the resolution of the text in the end. Yeah. Uh, the best of that would be... Um,
1: Resolution's a strong
0: word.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I disagree.
0: I think it's actually completely resolved. Look at um, uh. the climax of this text, arguably, is he reaches for his sister's hand and his sister shoves him away. The final thing we see is him meeting another seemingly lonely, nerdy woman who he makes eye contact with, which he is not able to do at any other point in this text, uh, and who reaches her hand out to him and says... My name is Tammy, which is like female Jimmy.
2: Yeah.
1: But he's gone through so many like fantasy versions of that. Like, is this right. a fantasy? That's real not, or not, that's the opposite of resolution.
0: But it's not, because you look at the next page, which is the beautiful ending, which is. Which him, is her? No. Him in the arms of Superman, flying mm. through a snowstorm once again. Is that? Right, right before it says the end is a very tiny image of Jimmy flying in the arms of Superman. The idea being the fantasy sustains so right. him. He needs it.
1: Well. <sighs> But that's not, that's where he was at the beginning.
0: <sighs> he was going to kill himself, though.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, maybe that's it's the, like the ending of Birdman of how got I mean, we don't know that yeah. either. I mean, that's kind of getting us at, you Mostly know... I
1: want Amy's story more than his. Well, Amy yeah, is that's, very interesting.
2: That's, to that's part of it. But I mean, what? Okay, see, one of the issues I have <laughs> with Jimmy Corrigan too, which I have with, a number of indie graphic novels and autobiographical comics is the representation of the patheticness of the comic book fan. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, it's not that Jimmy Corrigan is, well, he is a comic book fan because he's got the Superman connection, right? And the depiction of superheroes in this is something that I find very frustrating. <laughs> I don't know, I just find it such a juvenile treatment of it, you know? it's It falls into just that superheroes are these adolescent fantasies that you're going to be disappointed by when you get older and they're like you know all about <clears> masculinity <throat> and you're just going to be disappointed because your dad's not a superhero and i'm like okay great mm-hmm. that's like the only reading of that genre that we have that's like literally the most boring reading of the genre And it's not that that's not true but <laughs> it's just, just still the most boring reading of the superhero genre and it's not innovative at the point when this comic comes out but what about the ending <sighs> then I don't know. Well, yeah, there's like a hopefulness there or something, but I I don't think I read that image as hopeful, like the image of him flying with Superman through the snowstorm, because it seems like he's unable to escape his regression since superheroes are associated with childhood regression, like throughout this graphic novel. Mm. I I don't think superheroes are presented positively in a way that we can read that final image as positive. I think the fact that he surrendered into the arms of the superhero is a negative thing for him, not a positive.
1: Mm.
2: I don't know. What do you think?
0: I mean, the only thing that I think complicates it is um, the fact that it happened after he meets Tammy. Like, immediately after he meets Tammy. Touches her hand, flying in the arms of Superman once again.
2: Yeah, but that kind of reduces superheroes to an adolescent male fantasy again, right? It's like, oh, well, he gets like the favor of this girl. That's the Superman like fantasy, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. that's like... Uh, I can't really read Tammy as a Lois Lane.
1: <sighs> well, we get... She's one page. How do you get anything from... She, she's the anti-Jimmy at the... <laughs>
2: I guess so. I guess I just like feel like, oh, well, like you got this validation from the attention of one woman at one time and now you're a superhero. Great.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's consistent because obviously anyone pays the slightest attention to him and he's in love with her, including his sister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, again, this suggestion being that he's making the same old mistakes, but he's literally writing his suicide note when he meets her.
2: It's a lot to ask of women for them to respect you and be with you so that you don't so commit suicide. Talk. You know, it's like a nice guy trope that, like, I just it makes me dislike the character that much more because I mean it doesn't shy away from the misogyny of this character, but oh boy, how is that making me like? I mean, I get, I get I the point. Really it's not that, that we way, like way, it, but I, I completely but, yeah. see the point. I mean he's completely unable to relate to women as human beings, so I don't understand how he would suddenly be able to do that. How far are we into
1: the book before we get like a face of a woman?
2: Yeah. I mean I
0: mean that's that's the point though. Yeah. Yeah. He can't make eye contact.
2: Yeah. But again, like how is he having this magical like change just at the end? It seems more likely that he's just retreated into another fantasy and has gotten nowhere. I don't know, sorry, I'm pushing you on it. No,
0: I, I I like the discussion. I am I think this is a narrative about Jimmy's decision to validate his own existence. And that's what he's looking for in his father, and he doesn't get that, and that fails. Mm-hmm. So I think at the end, him choosing to live, even if it is regressing into this really complicated and um, misogynistic um, fantasy world that he creates, it's... is still for him something of a victory. I mean, it feels and, like, like
1: one of those endings that, like, where goes, like, we have to end it on an upbeat, so I guess I'll just include this thing, and maybe it fits, but maybe it doesn't.
2: Maybe there's, like, a bigger question mm-hmm. here that, like, I you know, I keep talking around, which, again, is something I'm often really decided about. I mean, undecided about, rather, because I keep complaining about the Jimmy Corgan character being unlikable, and I keep admitting that, of course, that's not the point, and yet... To what end can we be expected to engage this thoroughly and spend this much time on a comic in which the character is this unlikable? Right. Like, is that possible? I I don't know. It's a lot to ask.
0: No, it it is. And I mean, as we've kind of expressed already, this is an emotionally draining text. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, If nothing else.
2: And I just find it from a female perspective just emotionally draining you know watching just the constant struggles of this guy and I want to sympathize with you know what seem to be clear mental illness problems that like then manifest in misogyny which makes me less sympathetic it's like every time it you become a little bit sympathetic I just feel so angry at him mm-hmm. and I I think that that's intentional I mean if he's sort of a, a Charlie Brown-esque it, yeah, character it makes me think of sort of you know uh, when we talked about I complained a little bit about Peanuts in a previous podcast, I know. But if I read Peanuts as that Charlie Brown is supposed to be unlikable, I like it a lot more. Mm-hmm. But if I read it that he's supposed to be a sympathetic everyman, I don't like it at all. Well,
1: I think that is maybe a deliberate comparison we're supposed to make. Because it we is. do have a... Yeah, we've got right. this ball guy who keeps... Uh, attaching to red-headed ladies. Yes,
2: I think the comparison is definitely yeah. deliberate.
0: Yeah, and where, we should point out, is famous for doing a lot of contemporary um, updates and uh, adaptations of Peanuts.
2: And, I mean, even the design of the Jimmy Corrigan character, yeah. right? He shares that characteristic that Charlie Brown has where he's a child who represents almost as an old man.
1: He needs a Snoopy. Defin- yeah. Needs more
2: Snoopy. He definitely that could does. be the entire problem. In this movie. That, would, that would improve. Yes, that's the, that's the <laughs> end of the Just book. He gets a, a dog. dog? Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean... Does it need to have a point? Is the point just experiencing the perspective of this guy and this is what makes this comic good?
0: I think he's pushing the boundaries of empathy. Okay. That's really Mm -hmm. what it's about, right? Like Again, as you said, he's fundamentally unlikable. I cannot read this text as him being intended to be liked. Like I don't think Ware is thinking you're going to be really into this Jimmy Corrigan character. Um, But you spend so much time with them. And you see him from such an intimate perspective that you get that protagonist effect um, really, really large. So I think it's kind of challenging you to dislike him because that's the effect that he has on everyone around him. He's just one of those people you don't want to interact with.
1: Okay. Why is the other half here then? Why is What is the Chicago part there for?
0: In theory, I would argue the Chicago part is meant to make us interrogate whether or not we are um, part of a legacy. Right. Okay. Uh, that that a lot of his problems stem from this legacy of you know poverty, misogyny, broken families, that kind of stuff, uh, and thus him searching for his dad and finding his grandfather and all that kind of thing is is really just a journey of self discovery. Right. It's him trying to figure out he wants it to be their fault uh, that he is the way that he is. Uh, I mean,
2: get, and his
1: dad's not. His dad's kind of cool.
2: Getting back to the gender. Well, his
1: granddad's kind of cool, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, his granddad's. I mean, his dad's kind of an asshole. His dad is also racist,
0: but he's such a good father to Amy.
1: Yeah, but.
0: I know it, it's really. Confusing. I mean, racist he, he doesn't have get their the exceptions. Answers. I know. I I I totally think that that's kind of the point. That the situation is complex. I think he wants his dad to be an alcoholic. I'd like to
1: retract my statement about the granddad being likable.
2: (laughs) Well, just getting back to the gender question, though, like there's this critique of misogyny going on. I mean, particularly with the father figures and sort of the the damaging effect that they have. And even with the figure of Superman and the damaging effect that he has, you know, as as an icon of masculinity. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't know what the effect is of because one of the things that I just that just rankles me about this is that. It's asking me to spend so much time getting to understand the subjectivity of a guy that's unable to see women as anything other than objects. Right. And, like, that seems very cruel. I just, like, is that subverting misogyny or is that just telling me as a woman, like, you really need to understand this guy better? And I'm like, I'm sick of hearing that. I, like, I'm sick you of know, doing mm-hmm. that. I, like, I'm sick of the emotional labor I have to spend on these kind of guys who can't see me as a person because that's their problem, not mine. That's my little spiel. That's the anger no, that, that makes, this produces in yeah, me.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, i i think we're supposed to look at jimmy's misogyny as the product of his isolation mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think this is like an, an incel argument necessarily but it certainly leads to one in contemporary mm. society and this might be one of the ways that jimmy corrigan has aged kind of badly but even the isolation of masculinity as the thing to search for mm-hmm. uh, is you know equally problematic and his relationship with his mother is
2: very telling Uh And the insertion of Amy into the story doesn't really fix the problem since, so I mean, it's about Jimmy. He's still the focus. And we're still talking about how so much of the representational techniques in the comic are about representing his reality, right? Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. I just, I rankle against that a little bit.
1: And you say he, I guess, yeah, he does reach out his hand. But, like, he still barely makes eye contact.
0: (laughs) But look at those last two panels. That's a, where he looks at her awareness? while she's not looking
1: at him. well, she's looking outside. Yeah.
0: He's. That's where he sees Superman.
1: Yeah.
2: I don't know. See, I read these panels and I'm just like, oh great. Like the emotional burden that's being put on this woman for like having to make sure that this guy doesn't commit suicide by being a dream girl that he can latch his hopes and dreams onto. I'm like, oh Jesus, I don't want to have to be that person. Yeah, the, the end has kind of <laughs> a,
1: and things will go on as they have gone on. Yeah, I, I think
0: we have to recognize the Tammy thing's not going to work.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but... I don't know. It's, it's He's growing as a person, and he can't look mm-hmm. at her, and he yeah. can't reach out his hand. <laughs> On a small,
1: That's a lot. lot. I don't You're think Michael and I are going <laughs> to. But maybe <I> mean, it's <sighs> that
2: thing of, like, you know, feeling the pressure to. to to have character progression I mean I almost like no just just go into it just like lean into like that you're doing a story about a fundamentally unlikable character who has no character progression just lean into that deconstruction nobody comes
0: to terms with anything (laughs) no no
2: (laughs) there's like basically you know things just repeat themselves you know in patterns throughout history and nothing ever happens
0: So in both of these texts, we have a narrative that unfolds around a quest for um, either knowing the father or understanding the father. Uh, It's much more literal in Ware's case in that his character is actually looking for his father, Uh, whereas in Mouse, art has lived with him forever and still doesn't really understand him. Um, What do you think that accomplishes as a sort of device by which to move the plot? And how does it factor into the various themes that we're working with in these texts? What do you make, Anna, of the fact that the, the end of the first volume is essentially I hate you, Dad. <laughs> like a very almost um teenagerish
1: mm-hmm. kind of depiction.
2: But it's got such a nice progression, right, of him sort of moving from that to understanding a little bit better, you know, through finally getting to, to some of these Holocaust experiences, which obviously his father has been reluctant to discuss. I mean, you know. And then, you know, getting to a greater level of sympathy, but always going to have that distance from his father, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. the comic book form works well to establish that distance as well too, right? Like through the simplification. I always, when I teach it, have the students talk about the decision to include the photographs at the end of the second volume mm-hmm. um, and the significance of that and whether it adds to the graphic novel or damages it. I mean, what do you guys think? Oh, yeah. it's, it's sort of an interesting... I'm sympathetic to it in terms of, you know, establishing the reality of these things is important when you're talking about the Holocaust, right? Mm. Like wanting to make sure that it isn't only, only present in, you know, pictures that it's present in photographs, there, there's a truth telling there that matters. So the insertion of the photograph of his father, like really matters, I think. And the way that they insert the photograph, it's a picture of his father, in a recreation of the uniform, he has it taken in a photo booth after the war. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a picture of him from the concentration camp; it's a cleaned-up commemorative photo, which almost makes you think about the taking selfies at concentration camps yeah. kind of kind of thing. Only it's quite different in this case because it's an actual survivor, you know, and, and the complication, the complicatedness of, of taking that picture after the war. So I mean, even when he's incorporating that that photograph, it's in a very sort of way that's making us think about the problem of incorporating the photograph so yeah. i'm okay with it, the decision but it's an interesting decision well yeah. if it
1: gives his father like more of a voice in his own presentation
2: yeah yeah and i think that matters right yeah like because again he's very concerned with overlaying his father with himself and some of the techniques he does to ensure that doesn't happen, is to try to replicate his father's speech patterns, right? But at the same time, he's also writing those speech patterns out in his Mm -hmm. own hand, which is literally overwriting them, right? So again, inserting that picture is important in that sense.
0: Yeah. How do you connect that to um, the famous scene in um, Book 2, where he's illustrated as a human being wearing a mouse mask?
2: That's sort of a prolonged sequence, too, of him going to visit his therapist, and the therapist is wearing a mouse mask, and... In that sequence, the Spiegelman character is also wearing a mouse mask, so it kind of persists throughout the sequence. But the way he draws it is quite interesting, because in some images, the mask element is quite apparent. In other images, like the straight-on shots, you can't tell that it's a mask, so it's bleeding between mask and not mask Mm -hmm. sort of throughout the sequence.
0: And we have uh, another kind of parallel in that when um, Vladek is pretending to be Polish, he's seen wearing a pig mask. Yeah, exactly. very similarly constructed.
2: It's another instance where that could be a very obvious, simple metaphor, and yet the way that I describe that he depicts it, where it's visible sometimes and then mm-hmm. not visible, he's even adding complexity there, right? Yeah. He's using that obvious metaphor of, like, I'm putting on a mask to write this comic book and I feel guilty about what I'm doing here. But then, you know, showing that bleed between fantasy and reality and his inability to distinguish when he is wearing the mask and not wearing the mask. Right. So, you know, he's done that very... Well, I find. Yeah, it's his
0: search for identity at mm-hmm. the same time,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Represented graphically in like an obvious but subtle way.
0: Yeah. So this text is um, Mouse is autobiographical, um, and is taught very heavily in life writing. Jimmy Corrigan is inspired by a slight autobiographical thing where where was contacted by his estranged father, um, but he didn't actually get to spend any time with him. He he passed away. Mm. Um. How does Ware handle that relationship to the father? What's it doing in this text? And maybe even what's the, the end result of it? What is, what is Ware saying?
1: I guess one way that you could read the um stuff from the Chicago past is that it's a it's a way of repeating the trauma that the older Jimmy Corgan went through when his father left, but putting it at, at such a distance that it's oh, this happened so long ago it wasn't even me. Mm. I think what we see is a return of a father, and at least in the way it's represented here, the son is at such a place that there is no meaningful connection that can be made. The father keeps trying these like very banal attempts to bond, mm-hmm. and the son just can't respond to the things around him.
0: Yeah, one of the symbols that maybe speaks to that is his father um, keeps making him a plate of breakfast food. That spells yeah. out the word "hi," yeah. and Jimmy literally never eats it. So this idea of like reaching out but not actually
2: reciprocating. Something that just occurred to me, it's it's almost <laughs> Mouse is using the comics book the comic book form to kind of generate sympathy and Jimmy Corrigan is using the same elements of the comic book form to generate alienation, which Comics can do both, right? I mean, the gaps Mm -hmm. in comics, sort of the participatory nature of comics, how it it can be a very demanding medium in terms of us having to fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's using those same techniques to almost totally opposite ends. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: So as I said, in both of these texts, we have a um, journey to find meaning of the self through the relationship with the father. The obvious question becomes, hey, what about the mother? Uh, And why are those roles different if they are different? Uh, And how are they portrayed within the individual texts? I think maybe in both cases, we've got um, a sort of complex perspective on gender to walk through. I mean, I think it seems on the surface to be both are putting too much emphasis on the importance Mm. of the father. Um, But we could maybe complicated what's what's your take
1: well almost a really striking turning point in the first volume of mouse is when they uh, show spiegelman's earlier comic about his mother's death Mm -hmm. and especially how that shapes his relationship with his father well i mean there there you go right there that the death of his mother (laughs) is another like way of getting at the relationship with his father right
2: but i mean again it's also addressed in the sense that part of the, what's bad about the relationship between Spielberg and his, his father is his inability to forgive his father destroying his mother's journals. Mm. Um, at one point, he calls his father a murderer because he destroys the journals. Right. So we do have his mother erased here, but we have the process of her erasure being commented on um, very directly and his inability to have that relationship with his mother, you know, criticized very, very yeah. strongly. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, one of the issues I had in terms of that and Jimmy Corrigan is just that his relationship with his mother is so not explained that, I, I don't know, you just fall back on a Freudianism with it of like, she must be dominating his personality yeah. and that's why he can't be a man. And I just, I get that maybe that's supposed to be his perspective or, or something, but...
1: Well, we've got the scene at the very end where it's implied that a lot of the relationship has been overinflated in his own imagination, that his mother... Um, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm getting married. I'm, I'm living my life. Yeah. Mm. Bye. And then...
2: Well, the phone calls from her at the office. I mean, what do we make of that? I mean, yeah, it's like she, that is... she's being depicted as so demanding or yeah. something that I'm like, yeah, she seems like a typical mom. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, you can't even give someone that much, like, emotional energy to just, like, acknowledge them. I mean, my mother called while we were recording the podcast. I called her back. It's not that hard. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you know regardless of whatever issues you have with your parents if they weren't evil monsters they still, you know, put in all that time with you
1: i guess what well, one of the things his mother seems to be there to personify his guilt in pursuing his father as well that he has this yeah right. like when he's at the hospital with waiting to hear about his dad he has this he imagines that his mother has come to berate him for being there
2: But I guess it's just, it's a problem of we're never clear about whether that's her or his perception of Mm -hmm. her. And I wish that that was sort of interrogated a little bit more. Because otherwise, she's just falling into a stereotype. And because we only have his vision of her, that's never challenged. So kind of
1: like all the other female characters in that.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I kind of think it's interesting to compare um, to Jimmy's mission in this text. Like he's trying to find his father because he thinks that'll help him understand Mm -hmm. himself. And, and he seems to be suggesting, in many cases, that the absence of a father hurt him badly. But his mother is present, mm-hmm. and that seems to have, in, in Jimmy's perception, also hurt him badly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's kind of these two opposing extremes there. And, and I don't we have the, to gender specifically. But... We have
1: the child version where the mother's absence is supposed to be the problem, along with the father yeah. being too present, until yeah. the father isn't present.
2: Well, I mean, in terms of relating this to comics history and problematic tropes and the masculinization of, you know, comics in general, it sort of reminds me of uh, uh, one of the interview segments from the Crumb documentary um, called Crumb, um, where he's talking about sort of his motivations for some of the misogynistic, some of the, for the (laughs) misogynistic representations in his work. And he talks, it's, it's really, it's one of those very revealing moments where he talks about how angry he is at his father, and that's why he does it. And he doesn't say this explicitly, but the obvious implication is he's angry at his father, so he's punishing his mother. And it's just like, mm. oh god, how do you not see that? It's just so... that's just misogyny in a nutshell, right there. Women getting blamed for the problems of men.
0: Yeah. And
2: I don't know that this comic subverts that in any particular way.
0: Well, bringing that back to Mouse, how do you feel about the relationship between Art and Francoise?
2: I mean, in what sense? Just What does the... it
0: contribute? There's a nice contrast there yeah. between Vladek and his relationship with yeah. um, his second wife. Yeah. And, and then Art mm-hmm. and his seemingly very strong, supportive yeah. relationship with Francois.
2: Well, I mean, this is editorializing a little bit, but... I would say it seems like he's trying to emphasize he's trying to build a different type of relationship with his wife. I mean, inspired by some of the good because I mean, Vladek was very devoted to Anya, um, which which is which is you know great. But Spiegelman has a, a working relationship with Francoise, right? They work on Raw together. Mm. You know, their relationship exists within a professional context as well as a personal context, which is is not true of Vladek and Anya. And I mean, the act of odic destroying Anya's journals and how much that it sets Spiegelman seems like it would reflect back on that relationship between Spiegelman and Françoise, you know, mm. that again <laughs> he's interested in promoting female voices to the extent that they have a magazine of comics together, right? <laughs> and they work together in that respect. And so, you know, his upsetness at the destroying of his mother's voice seems to reflect, you know, his his vision of wanting to have that more equitable relationship. <laughs>
0: One of the advantages we have in looking at these texts in 2019 is just the sort of 2020 effect of hindsight. Um, One of the ways that we can really evaluate the long-standing benefit of these texts is the influence that they've had on the generations of comics artists that have come since. So channeling that towards a, a simple question, what does Chris Ware and Jimmy Corrigan give us that we see in other comics? What's been cultivated or developed since?
1: Honestly, uh, the tone of the story is one that I think has been very thoroughly explored. Uh, we have a whole subgenre of depressed, aging white men stories.
2: <laughs> There's a great thing in Bart Beattie's book, "Comics Versus Art," which could have been an alternate one we reviewed for for this for this particular podcast. We'll probably get to it in a future podcast. But in his section on Jimmy Corrigan from that book, he has a lengthy argument that. All the ways that Jimmy Corrigan is praised are the ways that we traditionally praise, you know, Mm. great literary productions. And that within a world of comics that's so desperately desperate to be taken seriously, he's got this great line that if Chris Ware didn't exist, then we would have invented him. (laughs) Because we need a figure like that to legitimize the field. And I thought that that was just such a great way of faintly praising him, you know, such a great way of sort of confronting that... He is a great cartoonist, and yet the ways that we've canonized his work reflect a lot of our presumptions about the things something has to be has to do to be good. Our veneration of it to the degree we venerated it, the ways that we venerate it, reflect a lot about, you know, our mm-hmm. unwillingness to think about comics as something radically different than literature and wanting to sort of put those definitions of high art that are they're that cultivated by and large by literature onto comics and that's where some of my discomfort with the canonization of jimmy corrigan comes in
0: well i think maybe maybe speaking to that directly um gene canberg i think it is might be mm-hmm. Frank jaffa suggests that um jimmy corrigan is a modern novel
2: yeah uh, mm-hmm. in
0: a postmodern era and if we look at you know what particular type of novel is considered the lyric standard in the academy it's the modern novel yeah so maybe uh, that's one of the entry points but yeah uh, weirdly outdated we might say um jimmy corrigan gets venerated
2: it almost feeds into a great man theory of history and a great man Mm -hmm. theory of art right if this great man didn't exist we would have had to invent him because we need him as a figurehead of comics I don't know where to fit the legacy of Mouse in, to be honest. Well, I mean, mean, what you
1: just said about postmodern applies equally to Mouse. Yeah, it
2: does. And yet, again, I just prefer it so much in terms of the way that it's using comics that to me, I'm more comfortable with it being a representation of what the medium can do well. I think although it is tempting to describe it as literary as well, I mean, again, those things that it's doing sort of merging sort of the high and low capacity of the comics medium... Just for me personally, it's more appealing in terms of making an argument about the value of comics, about what comics can do well. Mm -hmm. I I get that that's just a subjective difference. I mean, you know, for another person, that could be true of Jimmy Corgan. But for me, it's just more true of Mouse. Well, I
1: think on a mass culture level, Mouse has succeeded on that front in a way that Jimmy Corgan hasn't. That this is not just regarded as a a great example of the graphic comic medium. It is also lauded as an example of holocaust narratives yeah
2: well and i mean or it's life writing. yeah yeah i mean it's I, again the, the usefulness of this text it's great for teaching at the university level it's great to give to high school students to you know talk about the holocaust right it's such a good entry point to talk about so so many things and it's a great entry point for history it's a great entry point for life writing it's a great entry point just for storytelling it's a great entry point for viter- visual literacy there's just so many different ways that you can use this text and i just don't find that as true of jimmy corrigan which again Mm -hmm. is why i keep coming back to the for me it's not sort of the best things that comics can do for me i'm still gonna go with mouse on that one
0: i do think jimmy corrigan is cultivating a ton of technique though
2: oh yeah clearly yeah Yeah. i think (laughs) i think it's
0: one of those those books that is finding new ways to do things with comics as a spiegelman of course um, but as I said, I, I think the distinction is exactly what Anna mentioned, this, this idea that, that Spiegelman's is accessible,
1: mm-hmm. and, and
0: Jimmy Corgan's isn't. It's very advanced techniques that require a certain apprenticeship in comics mm-hmm. before you can approach them. But I do like having that. Do you know what I mean? Like, a this is a comic that you can only read. This is like the, the, the boss level of comics reading Yeah. in, well, in I'm, some ways.
1: I'm looking at a page that Anna has opened here, and this is like a master class of different ways of orienting panels of an old man eating. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> so I will be providing our academic review. Um, in keeping with our theme, uh, I chose Understanding Comics by Scott McLeod. Understanding Comics' The Invisible Art is a 1993 work of graphic narrative about graphic narrative. It would not be an exaggeration to describe the text as legendary in the comics literature field. Indeed, McLeod's text is frequently cited as the book that enabled comic scholarship in North America by creating a set of accessible but highly functional tools through which comics art could be deconstructed. There are many ways to testify to the established impact of this book, but perhaps the greatest way to praise it from an academic perspective is to simply note how frequently it still appears on the syllabi for comics courses all over the world, despite its advanced age. How many university courses do you know that still lean heavily on a 26-year-old textbook, especially media courses? building on prior work by Marshall McLuhan for general media analysis and Will Eisner for comics specific analysis. McLeod develops a critical vocabulary to help would be scholars of comics understand the complex series of mechanisms that comics employ in order to communicate meaning as foreshadowed by the book's subtitle, the invisible art, the central thesis is that comics are a medium that is largely understood subconsciously, at least in contrast to more rational forms such as text. For cloud, comics are perceived as simple because the way we interpret them is so advanced, so distant from our rational interpretations. It is this underlying notion that empowers the generation of comic scholars that have followed. McLeod ably substantiates his claim in understanding comics, demonstrating the complexity and variability within the fundamental relationship between text and image, the imaginative play that sucks the reader in between panels, creating a more immersive experience, the highly complex ways that time functions within and between static single panels, all while using the medium to its utmost ability. The decision to make a comics text a comic is brilliant. Even Will Eisner was mostly text and establishes an ethos at the same time that it achieves a rare clarity for any media analysis text. In keeping with the spirit of today's episode, revisiting some older texts that are considered sacred to the field of comics literature, the primary question for me becomes how well has this book aged? How well does it still serve in the field today? And honestly, it holds up pretty well. Comic scholars will be highly familiar with some of the debates surrounding the text, perhaps most notably that McLeod's definition of juxtaposed images creates friction with a later chapter in which he explores the way comics effects can very much happen in a single image, and that the juxtaposed definition does kind of eliminate a whole lot of wonderful single panel cartoonists uh, who work in that form either exclusively or occasionally. That is indeed a problem, but a lot of MacLeod's core ideas, the gutter, neutral mask, non-iconic abstraction, transitions, combinations, and even line and color are still described here with a deftness that more recent comics gurus have failed to achieve, in some cases failed spectacularly. Where we do see understanding comics aging is in the simple extent to which later scholars have advanced MacLeod's argument, and even in that, MacLeod should be flattered. He is, after all, the foundation in so many of these instances. Appropriately, McLeod is conscious of the ephemeral nature of his own ideas, but nonetheless concludes with a broad assessment of the medium. Quote, Today, the possibilities for comics are, as they have always been, endless. Comics offers tremendous resources to all writers and artists, faithfulness, control, a chance to be heard far and wide, without compromise. It offers range and versatility with all the potential imagery of film and painting, plus the intimacy of the written word. And all that's needed is the desire to be heard, the will to learn, and the ability to see, All quote. All untold, this book is old and shows its age quite clearly, most notably perhaps in the outdated references that McLeod uses as his examples. But given this foundational aspect that I just mentioned, and given the sheer quality of the ideas that McLeod is advancing, this book holds up pretty well, especially as an early instructional tool on how comics work. If you truly want to understand the invisible art of comics, this might still be the best place to start. Uh, so before we pack up today, we need to um, um, say a thank you to St. Trump's university for the equipment they've provided. Uh, and as we have come to do, we would like to do recommendations except here we're doing kind of anti recommendations. <laughs> we, we thought it might be fun since we're talking about legacy um, to talk about the subjectivity of comics and how there are some of these like really well-regarded sacred texts that we as individuals just don't like. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a measure of quality. It can just be this didn't work for work for me. Um, so I'll start by pointing out that um, I pretty much have not liked anything Grant Morrison has written other than We Three. Uh, and when I read his work, I recognize that it's it's great. He's doing like really new and interesting things. But there's something about the tonal quality of it that has always kind of put me off, uh, including in something like Arkham Asylum, where I can distract myself with um, Dave McKean's artwork. Um, but I still find myself not loving the story as much. Uh, how about
2: you guys we'll have to do a future episode where we do all-star superman because i've got so many thoughts i'm not a grant morrison fan either but we'll we'll have to find one of us that does like it so that we can argue the other perspective but um anyway yell at us in the comments about that but uh mine is gonna be uh also controversial which is watchmen i have a lot of issues with watchmen as the way that it's held up as the superhero deconstruction it does so few interesting things with female characters that I have a really hard time with it being the definitive text that does that. Mm-hmm. I just, in my superheroes course that again I'm teaching now, I chose to do Fantastic Four Unstable Molecules again, primarily because it does so many more interesting things with female characters than Watchmen does. And I didn't teach Watchmen, I chose Unstable Molecules instead, and I feel confident <sighs> in that choice, which to be clear, this is not me saying that Watchmen isn't good, Mm -hmm. but in terms of incorporating a history of female readers of comics into his revision and deconstruction of the history of comics reading, and in terms of incorporating female perspectives, female superheroes, the complex meanings that can be bound up in female superheroes besides sex and violence, um, I find it really lacking, and it doesn't deserve to be the definitive deconstructive superhero text because of those flaws.
1: Hmm. How about you, Michael? I struggled with this one a bit. (laughs) Uh, It's because you're nice. (laughs) No, it is not. I'm going to go with uh, Frank Miller. I think Miller is someone whose excess is so excessive in various comics where he's shown misogyny and racism that it it casts such a pallor on all of his previous work for me that I can still recognize that These are comics that are beautifully made, but frequently have messages behind them that are so toxic that I really dislike them.
0: And that is it for our show this month. Next month we'll be back with our Halloween-themed episode, Comparing Emily Carroll's Through the Woods to the EC Archives Vault of Horror Volume One. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at 3PanelContrast, that's the number three, Panel Contrast, where we're always happy to take questions and recommendations and whatever else. Otherwise, see you next month.